Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. It's me again. Lovely to think of you out there. All my friends out there in the, in the wider internet. I hope you're all hanging on in there. Before we start this week's podcast, uh, I wanted to let you know a bit about my Patreon site, uh, which helps support the making of this one. Each week on my Patreon, uh, I publish a new and exclusive video it's all about how history intersects with the modern world. You could say it's history and current affairs mixed up and the lessons maybe that we can and should learn from the past. Uh, we've been running another competition over the Christmas holidays, so there are prizes to be won. To join up, to become part of the Patreon family, uh, go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and it would be lovely to have your support and it would be great to have as many of you as possible along for the ride. And I will look forward to seeing more of you there. Now... It's time to head to the Highlands to catch a glimpse of the tragedy that struck as the world was changed forever in the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. I think about the Great War, the First World War, in the way that I do because both of my grandfathers were caught up in it. My dad's dad fought in France, he was wounded, we're not even sure how many times he was wounded, but at least twice. He, f- he fought at Albert, he fought on the Menin Road, he was at the Somme and he was at Passchendaele, and he carried wounds and shrapnel from it for the rest of his days. In this episode, we're travelling to an island washed in heaven's tears. Ancient jagged crags and a rare breathtaking beauty. All of Britain was devastated by the First World War. But it can be argued that it hit the Scottish Highlands hardest of all parts of the British archipelago. It's a conflict of such magnitude that its sorrow and suffering are almost and quite rightly impossible for us to comprehend. Billions of bullets, millions of dead men. But a snapshot of the sorrow is there to be seen and felt in this one small town. And for me, it brings World War I's horror into sharp relief. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. episode we climbed aboard the Titanic as it set off on its maiden voyage sailing towards tragedy as the band played on. 
Where are we this week? The sinking of the Titanic. Paul was a terrible disaster, killing and devastating the lives of thousands of people. And as it sank to the depths of the ocean, it serves and served as an ominous portent of what was about to hit the world. When the First World War was declared, uh, and when the fighting started, there was a, a seismic shift and everything was changed forever. In this episode, we're heading to the, the town of Portree on the breathtakingly beautiful Isle of Skye in the Western Highlands to try and come to terms with the magnitude of the First World War. This week, Paul, we're in Summerled Square, which is the town square in the town of Portree on the Isle of Skye, part of the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. And I will say up front that this place, this story, is more moving and affecting to me than any other. Not, not just in the hundred places, not just in the terms of the love letter. It's about the First World War, and the First World War affects me like nothing else. And for me, the story that I'm about to relate from Portree makes me understand the impact of the First World War like no other place and no other story does. So this one's closer to my heart than any other. Portree, it's spelt P-O-R-T-R-E-E, but it's from Gaelic. You know, Gaelic was the language of the Highlands for thousands of years. And it's port, as in port, somewhere you bring in a ship, a port. And ri, R-I-G-H, which is king. So Portree is the king's port. It was always clearly an important harbour on the island of Skye, and that's why you might say it's the capital of Skye. It's the principal town. It's where most people, you know, the biggest concentration of people lives. In fact, my wife is one among many uncountable numbers of people who were born in the maternity hospital in Glasgow, which was known to one and all as Rotten Row, because that was its address. The street that the hospital was on is Rotten Row. Uh, well, and and we often go on holiday to a wee town in the East Nuka Five called Ely, and there's a road there called Rotten Row, and you'll find Rotten Rows in many towns, and it's because that row is another corruption of re, which is king, and actually it, Rattan is street in Gaelic, so it's King's Street, Rattan Re. But it, because people mishear it, it becomes Rotten Row. So, that is so good, isn't it? Yeah. You wouldn't want to live on Rotten Row well, until it, but you know Until you know it actually means King Street, <laughs> <laughs> which changes it through 180 degrees. So, so there you go. So Portree. We're in Portree. Many people, if you visited Sky, you've probably went to Portree to get lunch or a cup of tea or fill up your car with petrol. It's the main place on the island. Sky is, it's a legendary destination in Scotland. I think many people, if they've never been to the Highlands of Scotland, in their mind's eye, the pictures that they conjure up, they're probably thinking about Sky, whether they know it or not. Sky's almost like the Highlands in a condensed form because of how it looks. And everyone, I'm sure, has heard of Over the Sea to Sky and, and, and its allusions to Bonnie Prince Charlie and Flora MacDonald. It, it's so part of the legend and the myth as well as the bona fide history of Scotland. For the longest time, you had to go by boat, hence Portree, hence the King's Port. 
when I was first visiting Sky with my dad, when I was a little boy, you caught a ferry for a very short trip. I mean, you can see Sky. It's right there. It's just off the coast. But you used to catch a ferry, which was, it was more fun in a way. You drove your car on and 10 minutes later, you, you drove it off again on, on Sky. But in 1995, a bridge was built, the Sky Bridge. So now you just drive onto Sky. It's an island, but you just drive onto it. So it's more convenient, obviously. And I'm sure the people that live on Sky count their blessings every day that instead of having to wait for a ferry, they can just come and go. But for a visitor, it kind of takes away a little bit of the romance. So you're just on the A87 from Kyle of Lachalsh, which is on the mainland. And then by the time you've crossed the bridge, you're in the village of Kyleekan. And from there, it's just 30-odd miles from Kyleekan up to Portree. When I think about it, I'm sure other people have other opinions, but when I think about Sky, I think about rain. I've been on Sky more times than I can count. Honestly, more times than I could count. And when I think about it, it's raining on Sky. It, it's, it, you get a lot of rain up there. And so there can be an air of gloom, sadness about Sky. And it, quite often, the cloud is low. So there's like a grey lid on the place. It looks beautiful. I mean, it still looks good. It suits the weather. But there can be an atmosphere on Sky of, of sadness. And of course, the grey clouds, they often bring rain. And, and it's, it's so often raining. But, but then, having said that, and, and to some extent, it even intensifies the impact of when the weather clears. When the sky is blue above sky, all of a sudden, it's like someone has opened the sunroof or turned a light on. And sky is transformed into a place of ethereal majesty and beauty. It's just absolutely stunning. Sometimes I feel when the sun comes out on sky, there's even a sense of being at altitude. It's almost as if the air's got thinner. You feel lifted up, elevated, almost literally. You love it, don't you? I, I do, I do. It's one of the landscapes of Scotland that's so overwhelming. In sunshine or in shadow, sky is... Sky's a personality as much as a place. It's a person. You kind of go and visit Sky. And sometimes it's in an upbeat mood and the sun's out and sometimes not. It's got a power. Uh, so, because of how often I've been there in the rain with my hood up or driving in my car with my windscreen wipers on, I think about, if you like, heaven's tears. It seems to be a place washed in heaven's tears. And in the context of the First World War, and it's because of the impact of the First World War on Sky, on Portree, that the place moves me and in the way that it does. It's worth knowing that of all the places, of all the regions or districts of the British archipelago, the Scottish Highlands were the worst hit by the First World War in terms of casualties and deaths. Now, obviously, there are far fewer people up there. It's sparsely populated, obviously, compared to the southeast of England or whatever. But per head of population... Places lost or had a casualty rate of one in ten. And Sky in the Highlands, it gets to like one in six of the people that, that went from the Highlands. The toll was severe. And so although in overall number terms, small numbers, the impact of losing that proportion of young men or having them damaged beyond repair, as I say, the, the Highlands, Sky included, were hurt worst of all the places in Britain. On Sky, there was a terrible harrowing. And maybe because I know that, I take that knowledge with me and that, that also 
personally affects the way I think about Sky because I think about that wound. People will have heard of the Coolin. People quite often say the Coolins, plural, but properly it's the Coolin, which is to say the mountain range that's like a backbone of Sky. It dominates the whole place, you see it all over. People talk about the black Coolin and the red Coolin. And it's down to colour, the black Coolin, which really is the Coolin. The mountains are made of gabbro, which is like basalt. It's the stuff that cooks up when there's a volcanic eruption that doesn't make it to the surface. And so underneath the surface, the volcanic rock, the magma, cools and it forms a crystalline structure, which is then exposed later on. Or indeed it does break out onto the surface and, and as it cools, it, it's crystalline, so it kind of shimmers. But the gabbro of the black coolin is a dark rock and the red coolin is formed of a paler granite. So people talk about the, the coolin and that's what they're talking about. The mountains that are there, all over the highlands up there and on the west coast and certainly on Skyr, are just the stumps, the jagged broken teeth left behind from a mountain range that, that once upon a time was far greater than the Himalaya. But they're older and they've been ground down by erosion and all the rest of it. But once upon a time, those mountains, when they were freshly cast, were bigger than the Himalaya. And all you're looking at now are the stumps and it's all frost shattered and broken in it. So old or not, up close you can sort of feel the pain of the mountain. You can feel the grinding down that it, that it endures. As I say, 33 miles along the 87 from Kailikin and you get to Portree. Portree's lovely. It's a nice town, nice looking town. The harbour and the pier that's there today uh, was built by Thomas Telford. And the houses down by the water, down by the harbour, are, are painted in nowadays in sort of soft pastel colours, you know, pale blue and pink and white. So it's got that Balamori feel, you know, the television series that BBC Scotland famously made for years, which is actually Tobermory, which is the principal town on the island of Mull, where there's, similarly the houses are painted in those soft colours. It's a, it's a bit of a thing up in that part of the world. So it's all very attractive. Behind the harbour, set back from the harbour, is Bank Street, and there you'll find the Royal Hotel, and the Royal Hotel, it occupies an, an older footprint of an older building, which was McNabb's Inn. So where the Royal Hotel is now was McNabb's Inn. And that's where in 1746, Bonnie Prince Charlie, Charles Edward Stewart, after he'd been wiped out or his force had been wiped out at Culloden, and he had to just run for it. He fled to Skye and then was shipped back to France with his tail between his legs. But apparently he said farewell to Flora MacDonald in McNabb's Inn. Now, he may or may not have had a romantic liaison involving Flora MacDonald. Certainly the films make it so, but she was part of helping him in his campaign and he bade her a fond farewell in McNabb's Inn. So there's, there's a lot of history all over it. And then we come to the, the First World War and I've always thought and I've always said that the First World War is so enormous, it, it's very difficult to process. Because once you start reading about it, you get overwhelmed by the numbers. It's about millions of men killed and tens of millions of men who fought, and billions of bullets and shells, and everything about it is overwhelming on its scale. Nothing like it had ever happened before. N nothing. In some profound ways, in, in terms of the way in which it has impacted upon our psyche as a species, there's been nothing like it since. The Second World War, 21 years later, it all erupted again, but it was essentially a continuation of the... It was another... 
it's like you know, you know when you get a fire in a coal mine and they put it out, but it just it can it can work its way smouldering through the coal and it can break out and burst into flames again miles away. So the the heat and the pain of the First World War burst out again twenty one years later in the Second World War. And we're not beyond the war. Some people have called the First World War and the Second World together a second 30 years war. And we're not beyond it. The wounds that were inflicted then are still felt now. And see trouble across Europe and even further afield. There are consequences of what was done between 1914 and 1918. Ties and, and loyalties that were formed then, animosities that were created then, are still there. You know, and sometimes countries in Europe, they flinch as though they're being stabbed by the pain of a, of a phantom limb lost a long time ago, but they wake up, you know, with a pain in it. The First World War is with us, but because it's so massive, it can be hard to get any sense of it. The last of the veterans are gone, long gone, so we're, we've, we've lost all of the witnesses that could give lived testimony. So it becomes harder and harder to make sense of it. And if you go, I mean, I've visited the battlefields of France and, and Belgium several times. and They're overwhelming. You go to the cemeteries and it's just serried ranks of white stones and crosses. They were carefully laid out and they're beautifully looked after by the Wargraves Commission. But they, they give a sense of order that's really just a veneer on the chaos underneath. You know, the bodies were buried just higgledy-piggledy, mass graves during the breaks in the fighting. And, and only later did they lay out these gravestones where they could... The soldiers weren't buried like that in the main. They were just put under the ground. And then these gravestones were, were laid on top to, to provide a, a veneer of, of order. But you just look at it, it's just great oceans of white stone and you think oh, every one of these represents a man. Uh, and the, the big charnel houses like Arras and Ypres and the Somme and Passchendaele, you can't take it in. But we need to take it in because in order to understand who we are, this love letter to the British Isles, it's about loving the place like you love a person and anyone that you fall in love with properly, it's partly the dark as well as the light. When you know someone properly, bad things have happened to everyone. Everyone's had their bad days, their traumas and all the rest of it. And part of knowing and loving someone properly is knowing all about that. And so in the case of loving the British Isles, you have to contemplate and try and comprehend what the First World War meant and still means. And I've said in many contexts that I think about the, the Great War, the First World War, in the way that I do, because both of my grandfathers were caught up in it. My dad's dad fought in France. He was wounded. We're not even sure how many times he was wounded, but at least twice. He fought at Albert. He fought on the Menin Road. He was at the Somme and he was at Passchendaele. He carried wounds and shrapnel from it for the rest of his days. My mum's dad, uh, who who died long before I was born, but... He lied about his age and joined the Royal Marines when he was 16 or 17. Like many boys desperate to be part of the adventure. He was in Gallipoli and he was shot by friendly fire. A British bullet. He was shot by mistake by one of his own. And the bullet passed right through his body, through his right arm, through his body and lodged in his left arm. He survived though. He was invalided out and back home in Renfrew in Scotland before he was out of his teens. Never fought again, and it, it compromised his life. He was he was younger than me when he died, uh, and it, it was attributed to damage that he sustained. You know, a bullet passing right through your body. You know, it does all manner of harm. And because I knew that, because I knew that they were both there, and that their wounds had been any worse than they were, 
you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, it, it brought me face to face with my own mortality and, you know, to live at all is miracle enough, as Mervyn Peake said. And that, that, it's the First World War that makes me think of that. I think if that bullet had taken a slightly different path or if the shell, the, the things that hurt my grandpa, my dad's dad, if they'd been any closer to him, <laughs> I, I, he, he wouldn't have had the chance to make my dad and so my dad wouldn't have made me. So I'm profoundly affected by the First World War. And it's best described, it has been described, the war, as a set of iron railings that separate everything that had happened before from everything that's happened since. And the, the analogy of railings is perfect because, like railings, we can see the world of the past, but we can't touch it, we can't get back. And the First World War came out of an Edwardian world of, of women in crinoline dresses, horse-drawn, men in straw boaters. We can see it. We can even smell it, but we can't go back. It was a line drawn, and the Edwardian generation that marched away to the First World War, they had no way of knowing what was going to happen. It was unthinkable and unimaginable. The last time the British Army had fought in any meaningful encounter was at Waterloo. That was 1815, that was 100 years before, and it was fought by men in red tunics with sabres drawn on horseback. When they remembered war, that's what they recalled, Waterloo. And they walked unknowingly into a war made of machine guns that fired 666 rounds a minute. Shells of unimaginable explosive power. mechanisation of war meant that all of this stuff was coming at them like a glacier. The volume of material that was deployed against human beings is unimaginable. And it meant that, that these battlefields of the First World War were mincing machines that men were just marched into and turned into pink mist. But they had no way of seeing it coming. So those men that went away, young men, boys really, a lot of them, they had no concept of what lay ahead of them. And so, as it happened, I got involved in making a film, a documentary, about a bunch of young men that, that volunteered from Portree on Sky and went away to the war. And we followed their story. And in the telling of it, I came to understand the damage that was done because I saw the damage that was done to that one little community of, of Portree. And then it kind of metastasized in my imagination and I thought, this much hurt, but multiplied thousands, hundreds of thousands of times is the hurt that was caused to a generation during the, the First World War. How those soldiers came to be involved in the years before the war, in the years before 1914, the British Army had decided they didn't have enough, didn't have enough soldiers and they didn't have enough for home defence. If the army had to go somewhere, it would have left Britain undefended. And so the solution to that was every existing infantry regiment up and down the country was encouraged to establish a territorial unit. Part-time soldiers, if you like. They ended up calling them the Saturday Night Soldiers. The intention was that they would be trained, you know, they would be put through the routines of drill on a regular basis, and if the standing army had to go and get involved in a conflict somewhere, they would step up like a home guard. And in the West Highlands, which takes in Sky, one of the local regiments, or the local regiment that mattered, was the Cameron Highland Regiment. 
and they were legendary by then. They had this swashbuckling reputation. They'd been involved all over the place. And so they raised their battalion of territorials. Now you have to you have to imagine or you have to think or know that in Sky, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, most of the population lived in grinding poverty that we can barely conceive of. A hand-to-mouth subsistence farming existence. Hard, poor, hungry. And so for a lot of young guys, men full stop, joining the territorials was a good idea because you got fed and paid. And every year there was a two-week training break. It was almost as good as a holiday for these guys. So joining the territorials was popular. You know, the uptake was pretty good. It gave people clothes and something else to do apart from the humdrum of their lives. And they got a two-week holiday, effectively, out of it. And they got fed while they were training. With no experience of recent conflicts... Were these territorials seen as a bit of a soft touch? No, no not necessarily. You know, the Highlanders, the, the Scots have been, a, have been a belligerent lot. The clans fought one another like cats and dogs. They all had clan history. There had been the Jacobite rebellions, you know, in relatively recent times that they'd, they'd all been caught up in. So they were a fighting lot. For those same reasons that the territorials were popular, getting into the, say like the, you know, the Black Watch was established in the aftermath of Bonnie Prince Charlie's Jacobite Rebellion, Re- really to have a force ready to keep peace, <laughs> to quell the heat of the Highlands. They were popular, these regiments, because it, it gave young men something else to do. You know, they didn't, what, what chances, what opportunities did young men born in the Highlands have, really, beyond farming? Nothing, really. And lives of poverty in the main, but if you could get into the regiment, you get away. Could have an adventurous life. You got three square meals a day. It was a great thing. So there was a well-established tradition of young men in the Highlands joining up for all of those very practical reasons, just to get out, get away, get fed, get a uniform to wear instead of your tattered clothes. So it was successful. Now, Portree in 1914 had a population of fewer than 1,000 people. So 900 and an odd people there. About a hundred or so men joined up from Portree and the surrounding area. They joined the, the territorial regiment of the Cameron Highland Regiment. And 28 of them were neighbours of one another in Portree itself. So they all knew each other. They all had a variety of, of occupations. And I think it's worth hearing their names because, you know, they've been dead a long time. And I think the least we can do for them is remember their names. So the group was led by Captain Ronald MacDonald. Yes, the same name of... Of the of the mascot of the Macdonald takeaway dynasty, uh, but Ronald Macdonald would not have been an unusual name in that part of the world at that time. Certainly, he was a graduate of Glasgow Uni, and he was also the the local lawyer. He was the guy you went to for conveyancing or getting your will drawn up or or whatever other slight you know legal requirements people would have. His second in command was a forty five year old war veteran, Sergeant Major Willie Ross. Big swell of a chap. He'd been a champion at the Highland Games, caber tossing and all that. You can picture him, big bull chested, big guy, ex soldier. He knew what he was doing. But all the rest were just young men and frankly boys. William MacDonald, he was 24. He worked as a clerk in the local estate office. And then from Mill Road, just a little bit away, was Sergeant Donald MacLeod. And he worked in Ronald MacDonald's law firm. 
There was not too far away coming out of back Wentworth Street now. I, I walked around these streets. The houses are still there. The front doors those men walked away from are still there. They're all close together. So back Wentworth Street was the home of John Grant. He was 22 and he was a stable boy. He's still living with his mum. John Nicholson was 24. He was a fisherman, so he went out on the boats. He was from Bayfield. Then Charles Sinclair, 21. He was uh, from a house right down in the harbour and he worked for McBrain's, Caledonian McBrain, the ferry company that still operates. And he was a formidable sailor and, and they said about him that he could find his way at night over the sea just looking at the stars. Celestial navigation. William Turnbull was 29, he was a plasterer from Bossville Terrace. And then there was another house down in the harbour and it was home to a stonemason. And the stonemason's son was John McFarlane. And like my mum's dad, he was underage when he joined up. And they just let him, they knew, but they let him come because it was an adventure. They weren't worrying in the way that you or I might worry about sending our sons away to the First World War. So off he went, and they, down they went. They marched down one day, down to the harbour, and they got aboard a ship, and, and off they went. And they trained in Bedford. So they travelled down by train to Bedford, and they trained. And on the 19th of February, 1915, they'd had their six months of training, and they boarded ships on the south coast and headed across to France. And young John, young John, the one who's underage, he wrote letters home that we still have. And we have them in the archive. And he, he wrote up to his mum saying that him and his buddies were enjoying the fun. They were having a great old time. And then finally they get into conflict. They fight, they fight first of all, uh, in the grounds of a farmhouse near Neuve-Chapelle. And then on the night of the 17th of May, 1915, they found themselves at night, or as darkness was falling, in fields by the village of Festubert. Obviously, the, the men from Skye weren't on their own. They were with a, a bigger company from Kingusi, which is cl close by Skye. It's more Highlanders from another part of the Highlands. And then two more companies from Bedford itself. And uh, for one reason and another, we don't really need to go into the whys and the wherefores. They were cut to pieces. They tried to attack a strongly held position and it was defended by Bavarian reservists and, crucially, a German Jäger battalion, professional soldiers. And they had machine guns in position and the, the men of Festubert and the rest, they advanced onto this position and they just got cut down. All of which meant that soon after, 13 telegrams arrived on doorsteps in Portree on the same morning. 13. Now remember, there's, there's only 900-odd folk live in Portree. The 13 homes, those same homes, received these telegrams. Dead was William MacDonald, Donald MacLeod, William Turnbull, Company Sergeant Major Willie Ross, John Grant, John Nicholson, and John McFarlane, the underage letter writer, and Charles Sinclair, the celestial navigator, all dead. Ronald MacDonald, their captain, he had been shot through the throat at Neuve-Chapelle, and although that didn't kill him, he was dead by the following year while still in France. The infection got him and he died. Of the 28 Portree neighbours, those men who'd come away from those houses, 10 died that night in Festubert, and only 8 of the 28 would survive the war. And when you walk around those streets now and you walk past those front doors 
and you know that those men walked away to the First World War, it's impossible not to sense what that impact would have been. All these houses are within a five minute walk of one another and all of those houses were shrouded in that terrible grief of losing those young men. And when you make your way, I mentioned at the top, the town square is called Summerled Square. It's a nice, nice, nicely laid out. There's the usual shops around it, a couple of pubs and whatnot. Summerled was a Viking, literally led by the summer. Viking was something you did in the summer months. Once the fields were planted and you were waiting for the harvest, you went off a Viking, which meant an adventure by boat. And so Summerled is the patriarch, the original origin of the MacDonald clan. The MacDonald clan, they're all descended ultimately, or they say they are, from Summerled the Viking. So that's why it's Summerled Square. And in the pride of place in Summerled Square, there's a war memorial. One of those things you see everywhere, every town and village and city has them. It has 104 names on it. Uh, 104 men eventually that went away from portraying the surrounding area and from Sky, and they never came home. It's a simple thing, really. It's a, a, a golden sandstone hexagon. In the middle of it, there's a white column, a slender column of white marble, and there's a, a, a lion on top of it. And the names are there. John McFarlane, the youngster, his name's there. The one that loved his mum and sent her his letters. His body was never found. But his, his father was Thomas McFarlane, the stonemason, and it was Thomas McFarlane who built the war memorial. It was, it is, British Army policy, British government policy, to leave the bodies where they fell. So none of the bodies were, well, there are a few exceptions, for exceptional reasons, but by and large, the millions remained behind to form those terrible cemeteries. And it meant that people had nowhere to go. They had no grave to visit, and people need graves. It's important to people to have somewhere to go. And so what happened was they raised war memorials all over the place. The 36,000 war memorials that we know about, it's the biggest public art installation in British history. And none of them were paid for by the government. It was local communities who raised the money in each case. Was it? Yeah, it was communities who had lost their fathers and their sons and their brothers and their husbands. It was them that raised the money and they consulted with artists and they commissioned work. And they had those, all 36,000 of them, were each uniquely and individually thought up, commissioned and paid for by local communities who wanted somewhere to remember their loss. Nothing else like it had ever happened before and frankly nothing else like it has ever happened since. But it mattered to people to have these memorials so that the names of the dead would be remembered even if they couldn't have their bodies. There's a funeral oration recorded by the Greek historian Thucydides he records the funeral oration for a character called Pericles, and it has within it, For heroes have the whole earth for their tomb, and in lands far from their own, where the column with its epitaph declares it, there is enshrined in every breast a record unwritten, with no other tablet to preserve it except that of the heart. And so it is. You go to somewhere like Summerled Square in Portree and you look at the names, and then you can walk the streets of Portree and you can walk past these addresses and you can see how close together these men lived and that their lives were entwined and they were entwined as part of the fabric, part of the tapestry of their communities and when they went away to the war and were killed, you know, in their case cut down by the guns of Festubert, it tore holes in the fabric 
of society. It tore holes in the fabric of reality. It tore holes in the fabric of time that will never be closed. And when you go to somewhere like Portree and it becomes intimate, there, like nowhere else, I felt I came closest to understanding the Great War. Horatio Herbert Kitchener declared, Your country needs you. The call for volunteers to raise a new army. Five strong brothers who worked together on the local manor estate answered the call. And their great war began. Five brothers from the Souls family were all lost. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account. It's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music's by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is taken care of by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are the work of Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and who continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.